today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. Jesus tells John to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So that's three, that's that's a good outline right there. In other words, the things which have already taken place, the things that, uh, that are going on right now at the time of John, and the things that will happen in the future. And the book is broken down pretty much that way. The things which you have seen, that's chapter one. That's, that's what he sees right now. The things that are, that's the letters to the churches, chapter 2 and 3. The things which will be is actually the whole rest of the book, chapters 4 through 22. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John and broken into three sections. The things that had already happened, the things that were going on right then, and the things that had yet to come. Today, Pastor David discusses helpful information related to each. Revelation is a difficult book to understand, and scholars vary widely on its interpretations. Rest assured, however, that nobody needs to understand the book fully to be saved. Jesus is your Savior. Believe in Him, and you are saved. Now here's Pastor David in the book of Revelation chapter 1 as he begins his message, The End and the New Beginning. In darkness, the best thing for you to hear is, hey, the light's going to be back on in a moment, or that the light is coming. You ever been in a building where suddenly all the power goes out and you're in darkness, and somebody said, hey, don't worry, don't worry, I know where the breaker is, or whatever, they they get the light going. If you're in pain, the best thing for you to hear is, it's only going to last for a little bit, and you know, uh, in just a few moments or an hour or so, it'll be all over. If you're in a situation that you're uncomfortable with, the best thing for you to hear is, it's not going to be this way forever. And guys, I want to tell you right now, the church at around AD 90 needed to hear those words. You remember, as we're studying through the book of Acts, we just got into the time where, again, after the stoning of Stephen, that the church went in under persecution, and again, the the spreading of the church as the church left Jerusalem, went into Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. We understand that that was somewhere in, you know, it was just shortly after the the time of the, the, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. So only a, a very short time, months, maybe uh, maybe a year or two, not very long after that. And that was the beginning of the persecution. And that persecution continued to grow. It grew through Nero, it grew through, again, the others. And now around 90 A.D., 
Domitian was the, uh, he was the Caesar at the time. He was giving great persecution to the church. And the church, again, was just overwhelmed with, man, is, is this what it is? Is this all that there is? What's going to happen from here? That's why John wrote the book of Revelation. That's why the Lord Jesus gave John that vision to be able to share that with the church, to help them to know, hey, you're not going to be in the dark forever. The light switch is going to come on. Uh, You're not going to be in pain forever. It's going to get over. The stress, the attacks that you're feeling right now, this isn't forever, that God does have a plan. And I don't know about you, but when I'm going through stuff in my life, uh, the, the most ease, the most rest that I can have is knowing that my sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God is in control. I'm not in control. There's like way many times that I know I'm definitely not in control. But we can rest in the fact that our God is in control. Like I said, it was written around 90 AD. The Apostle John was uh, on the Isle of Patmos. He had been banished to that island for a while, again, while Domitian was the uh, ruling uh, Caesar at the time. And he was banished there, as the word says, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So in other words, he was banished to that island because he continued to proclaim Christ, preaching the word both uh, in season and out of season, when it's convenient, when it's not convenient. And again, for John the Apostle, he's an old man by this time. He was one of the youngest of the apostles, and now we're talking some 60 years later. He's an old guy at this time. And again, in the midst of that, he continues to proclaim Christ. He's continually, again, encouraging the church. Rather than rotting away in a prison, though, or executing him, what they did is they took him and banished him to this very barren island, this island by the name of Patmos. Now, A.T. Barnes writes about this place. He says that no place could have been selected for banishment which would accord better with such a design than this. Lonely, desolate, barren, uninhabited, seldom visited, it had all the requisites which could be desired for a place of punishment. And banishment to that place would accomplish all that a persecutor could wish in silencing an apostle without putting him to death. But it's interesting, it was because of that barrenness of that island that John actually had that opportunity of quietness and communion before the Lord. He got out of the busyness of of the, the ministry, in essence, and now he's on a barren island and he's quiet before the Lord. It was a reminder to me that, again, when when the worst of things come to us, actually we need to understand that God allows those things actually to bring us closer to him, closer to him. And I'm reminded... Don't waste your sufferings. Don't waste your sufferings. Draw closer to God in the midst of those. In verse 10 of chapter 1 in the book of Revelation, John tells us, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The early church referred to the Lord's day, the day of uh, Jesus' resurrection, Sunday. So this is on, on a Sunday he's there. It was on that day, John undoubtedly, he was praying, he was seeking the Lord, uh, being in the Spirit, and the Lord revealed this great vision to him, which we now know as the book of Revelation. And Revelation is the only complete prophetic book in 
the New Testament. We have prophecy scattered around the New Testament, uh, words of Jesus often speaking prophetically, but Revelation is a book of prophecy, the only one that we have in the New Testament. Warren Wiersbe explains to us that the word translated revelation simply means the unveiling. It actually gives us the, the word that we have today as apocalypse. But unfortunately, we, we look at the word apocalypse and we, we think of chaos. We think of catastrophe. The verb simply means to uncover, to reveal, or to make manifest, to make known. In this book, the Holy Spirit pulls back the curtain and gives us the privilege of seeing the glorified Christ in heaven and the fulfillment of his sovereign purposes in the world. In other words, Wiersbe says, Revelation is an open book in which God reveals his plans and purposes to his church. And remember, he's doing this while they are under great, great persecution. And as we look at this book, and believe it or not, we're going to try and get through the whole thing in about 45 minutes. We're going to look at it in, in, well, Jesus gives it to John in three parts. Look over in verse 19 of chapter 1. Jesus tells John to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So that's three, that's, that's a good outline right there. In other words, the things which have already taken place, the things that, uh, that are going on right now at the time of John, and the things that will happen in the future. And the book is broken down pretty much that way. The things which you have seen, that's chapter one. That's, that's what he sees right now. The things that are, that's the letters to the churches, chapter two and three. The things which will be is actually the whole rest of the book, chapters 4 through 22. Now, we're going to look at it tonight. We're going to kind of break those last chapters down a little bit. We're going to see that in chapters 4 and 5, that's the scene at the throne room of heaven. Chapters 6 through 19 is actually that time of tribulation on the earth, and we're going to even break that down a little bit more. And if you're taking notes, chapters 6 through 9 is the first half of the tribulation. The middle of the tribulation is chapters 10 through 14, and the last half being chapters 15 through 19. Now, there may be some disagreements on that exactly on the times and the dates and everything, but it's just a good way to be able to see it. And again, it's not necessarily a hill you need to die on, but it does does help you to kind of understand what's going on in the book. Then we see the millennial or the thousand-year reign of Christ in chapter 20, and then we see the new heavens and the new earth coming in in chapter 21 and chapter 22. So what's the first thing? He says, the things which you have seen. We find that there in chapter 1. As John tells us, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He had this direct visitation by the resurrected Lord Jesus. And the purpose was to give John a clear message, not only for those seven churches, but for the believers literally throughout the ages. Though John understands, and even the message there is, this is the time of the end, we are still in the time of the end. And though we, in our culture right now, we live in relative freedom and relative uh, ease of being able to share the witness of Christ, our brothers and sisters in other areas of the world are struggling right now for the word and for the testimony of Christ. And so again, the understanding that, man, this isn't all there is, that the Lord does have a plan and he's working through it, it's encouraging for them. The whole book should be understood, again, as a message of hope. It should be understood as a message of encouragement during times of trials and the attacks of the enemy. It's a message that none of these things take place and take God by surprise. God knows all of these things. 
Our God is over all of these things. And literally, when we look at the book of Revelation, we see that he has a plan, and yes, he even has a purpose for these things. So we see that really in in chapter 1, as again, the Lord reveals himself to John and tells him, I want you to write these things down. And then he gets into chapters 2 and 3, the things which are right now. And as we get into the things which are, we see the message that the Lord Jesus Christ, he's given to these seven distinct churches. And these churches actually existed during the day of John. These were real churches. We could say Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande, Calvary Chapel of Coolidge, Calvary Chapel of Maricopa, Calvary Chapel of, you know, wherever, or, or any church name. I'm not just saying of Calvary's. Any ch- These were real churches with real people that were going through persecution and trials because they loved the Lord, because they wanted to serve the Lord, and they were being, again, persecuted for that. When the word says that it was a message to the angel of the church of wherever, you need to realize that the Greek word that's translated as angel could also mean the messenger of that church, even the pastor of that church. It could be translated a number of different ways. He's pointing out seven different churches here with seven different personalities, seven different issues in essence, different problems that each one has, seven churches, seven messages. Four of these churches, and we're not going to go through all of them. Again, this is an overview, trying to get through all of it. But four of these churches, they get a message of blessing, but then they also get a message of warning. Uh, The church of Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. A word of blessing, but also a word of warning. Uh, The church of Pergamos in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, the same thing. The church of Thyatira, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. The church of Sardis in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Each one of those churches had some good things that were going on, but the Lord said, but there's areas that, that... you need to take care of within that church. And I think that more than anything, I think that probably the, the word of the Lord even to Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande might even fall upon that line. We're not a perfect church, amen? Because you don't got a perfect pastor. And you know what? I've looked around. I don't have a perfect congregation. You know, we're, we, we've all got issues. We, we've got stuff that's going on. There's, there's things that we could be doing better, Amen. And there's things that, again, in, in not only in our personal lives, but as a, a body of believers. Two of the seven messages, really, there's, there's no negative things that are given. I, I wish that I could say, hey, that's where we're at. But I, I just want to be honest. I want to be real with this. Smyrna, uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Um, he does say, hey, you're going to suffer tribulation, but it's only going to be for a short time. The, the Church of Philadelphia, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, again, the one that probably had the, the best message of all, but they're also going to have a time of trial. The Lord tells them that they're going to be kept from that hour of trial. So in other words, something's going to be going on, but you're going to be saved from that time of trial. One church, <laughs> this is the church we want to make sure we're not, okay? One church, nothing good is said about them. Uh, and actually, there's a, there's a very heavy warning that comes against them, and that's the church of Laodicea, chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. The sad thing is, when he speak, when Jesus gives that word to that church, guess what? Jesus isn't in that church. 
He's outside. He's saying, behold, I'm standing at the door knocking. I'd love to be a part of your church. Wouldn't that be a sad thing to realize? That, that Jesus isn't involved in the church, that the Holy Spirit isn't moving in the church. We just come to meet and we have a great time and we go home. No, Lord, save us from that. Now, through the years, Bible scholars sought to correctly in, interpret, again, these messages to the churches. And there's been a lot of schools of thought uh, on how it's done. Some say that the message were directly and they were only to these seven churches that were found there in John's day. They were just for those guys. Yeah, we might be able to take lessons from it, but it was a message just to them. Some schools of thought say that they are a representation of the seven churches, and they could actually be speaking to any church at any age, and yet moving through, again, uh, times and and transitions of the church, so that any church at one point in time could be the church of Ephesus. You've lost your first love. Any church could be at one point in time, man, I feel that we're, we're fine, we're rich, we're wealthy and everything, but in essence, we're, we're poor and we're blind and we're naked. Some believe that it comes that way. Thirdly, uh, some look at it and say that the, the messages of the seven churches actually speak of various times or epochs of the, the church history, that the church as a whole itself has moved through each one of the and some say that really as a whole, the universal church is actually almost in the place of the church of Laodicea. In other words, the church universal being very busy about doing church, but not very connected at all in relationship to Christ. Now we move into the things which shall be. And this is the big portion. This is the one that, again, uh, the variety of interpretations and directions are almost as vast and wide as the number of denominations and uh, splits within denominations. Um, chapter 4 and 5, we actually see seen at the throne room of heaven. We see directly after the message to the churches there of chapter 2 and 3 in chapter 4, John is ushered up immediately up into the heavenlies. And we talked about this last time, about how, again, we look at that. I look at that, many look at that as symbolically speaking of the rapture of the church before these end-time events happen. Not everybody believes that, and that's not a problem. If you don't believe that, it's not a salvation issue. You'll believe it when it happens, though. So anyway... It, it, it's not only, as, as we look at what John is writing and what the Lord is giving to him, it's not only a powerful visual experience for John, but there's also this powerful uh, audible, or, or, or he can hear this experience. He sees it and he hears all that's going on. Man, it's a place of majesty. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of worship. In, verses, uh, in verse 4, he sees 24 thrones, and on those 24 thrones, there's 24 elders, and that represents, as best we can understand, that's both the Old Testament saints as as well as the New Testament saints. Remember, we had the 12 fathers of Israel. We had the 12 apostles, and those thrones there, those being the elders. Along with these 24 elders, we also find in verses 6 through 8 there in chapter 4, 
this, these four living creatures, which are like really bizarre. Now we're starting to get into some weird stuff, trying to figure out who that is, how that is, what that is. Uh, one of these creatures is like a lion. One is like a calf or an ox. One uh, is like a man. And again, the final one is like an eagle. Each one of these creatures is full of eyes in the front and the back, each one having six wings. Now, what John sees here and what he's explaining is very close to what Isaiah and Ezekiel in their prophecies write about the creatures that they saw in their vision of heaven. But none of them match, you know, absolutely perfectly. Uh, But you can clearly see that there is something that's going on. And as you try to explain that or describe that, you're, you're limited by your humanity. You're limited by your earthly experience to be able to uh, say what that is. How many of you know what an iron horse is? You heard that term, an iron horse. Where did we get that term, an iron horse? Because the Native Americans, that was a way of trying to explain to them what a train was, because they had never, ever seen a train. So it's like an iron horse. And again, if you've never seen things, you try to explain it as best you can. It was an out of this world. It was a supernatural uh, experience that he was having. He was in the very realm of, of God's presence, and these things were going on in his presence. How do you express the inexpressible? Amen? So John tells us that these living creatures, look down in verse 8 of chapter 4. He says that these living creatures, they don't rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders uh, uh, fall down before him uh, who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created." Now, can you imagine the sensory overload that John was having? Not only to be up in the throne room of God, but now you've got these four creatures, and they're giving praise and glory and honor to God. And as soon as they start, then these 24 elders, man, they fall down. They begin giving praise and glory. He only thought that he was in the spirit before. I mean, he is like really in the spirit right now. He's just enveloped in it powerfully. And he's experiencing firsthand what you and I will experience someday. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. We had a great time away this last weekend. We went up and saw the mountains. We were up in Sedona and Flagstaff just enjoying the beauty of God's creation. But guys, it ain't nothing like what is being prepared for us even right now. Well, as we get on a little further in, the tribulation that's going on in in the earth, chapters 6 through 19, we're going to look at what what I see as the first half of it, chapters 6 through 9 first. Chapter 6 actually opens with God Almighty having a scroll that's written both in the inside and on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. 
And again, there in the heavens, they're looking around to see who's going to be worthy to take the scroll, to open it up, to loose the seals. No one was found worthy. And John begins to weep. I mean, he, he, he wants to know what's going on. And, and man, no one is worthy. But pretty soon, one of the elders comes up to him. Look down in verse 5 of chapter 6. He says, do not weep, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll. Noticed a theme weaving its way through Pastor David's messages and really through the Bible? That theme is salvation. It's Jesus. From the very beginning, God planned for his son to come save the world from its sins. You find this plan ingrained in his word, in the lives of the key people of Scripture, and in the words of truth each book provides. We're so glad you're on this journey with us. Through the Bible, we pray you're finding Jesus not just in the text, but in your everyday life too. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you'll be able to listen online at theopenword.com. There's several messages there, in fact, and many of them go even more in-depth through a verse-by-verse study of each individual book of God's Word. That website again is theopenword.com. Before our time is up with you today, we'd like to turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick request for you, our listener. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I wanted to take a moment and ask you to be praying for the ministry of The Open Word. I know God is working through the messages I've been able to share, and He's opening hearts to His love every step of the way. As Chris was saying, this book I'm teaching from is just filled with grace, and I want everyone to know about it. Would you pray that more and more people would come to know the saving grace of Jesus? Would you pray too for all of us who are creating the Open Word program? We want to keep focused on Jesus, not on us. Thanks so much for praying. And thanks for joining me today on The Open Word. Make us more.